Welcome to the Block School Podcast, a series devoted to business leadership and community impact in Kansas City. I'm Brian Kloss, Dean here at the Block School. Block is Kansas City's business school, and in this podcast, we will be learning what some of the top minds with the Kansas City Connection are thinking about opportunities for economic and social impact. We will be getting insights from business and civic leaders, entrepreneurs, nonprofit innovators, and policy experts. We are launching the Block School podcast with alumni impact episodes, where we highlight the impact of Block alumni in Kansas City and beyond. Today, we speak with Heather Humphrey. Heather is Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at Evergy. Heather has a broad portfolio of responsibilities at Evergy and has played a critical role in a number of critical strategic initiatives at the firm. Prior to joining Evergy, Heather was an equity partner at Shugart, Thompson, and Kilroy. Heather has her MBA from the Block School, her law degree from Washington University, and her undergraduate degree from the University of Missouri at Columbia. Heather is very involved in the community, serving on the board for the Kansas City Chamber of Commerce, the Children's Center for the Visually Impaired, Starlight Theater, and Kansas City Friends of Alvin Ailey. Heather, thank you for joining us. It is my pleasure to be here, Brian. Thank you for having me. So Heather, let's talk about leadership in a world with so many different stakeholders where ESG considerations are more prominent. How is your approach to decision-making affected by the need to address different stakeholders and ESG considerations? Yeah, it's a really topical question, Brian. Perspective, I think, helps answer the question. From time to time, right, we see different interests in our stakeholders that kind of culminates into, I'd say, bigger priorities for not just us, but industry and other publicly traded companies. ESG is like that. That's not to say that it is a trendy item. I'm not trying to put it in that category. What I'm saying is that Evergy, formerly Legacy KCPL and Legacy Westar companies, we've had our eye on the environment, social and governance issues for years as a fully regulated, vertically integrated utility that has been top of mind since I started at the company in January of 07. And we were talking about it in terms of using words like virtual power plant for the push to encourage customers to reduce the use of energy. The idea being that we wouldn't have to build more power plants if people would be more conservative in their use of energy. It was perplexing to me. I'll be honest. When I joined the company, I had been outside council, but I didn't fully appreciate how invested the utility industry, and in particular for Midwestern Utility, the legacy company that I started with at KCPL was already very interested in how do we better fill the role of environmental steward? How do we hold ourselves to a higher standard on social and governance issues. So it's been around for a long time for us. The ESG movement with stakeholders really, I'd say, kind of coming to the fore in large part with letters from major institutional investors encouraging companies, publicly traded companies that they're invested in to do more. We found ourselves in the spot, like a lot of entities, where it is as much a process of 
aggregating information that's already there and making sure that it's publicly available as it is defining who we are and how we continue to be on the cutting edge of being stewards for the environment. So it has, I'd say, modified how we think about communicating those things. I wouldn't say it's necessarily given us a new or revived or a different view on those topics, the ESG topics, because we've been there. And that's partly what I think is compelling about Evergy, why I like working there. In your role at Evergy, you do a lot of work with the board of directors. How do you encourage effective board governance about these issues or any set of issues? And how do you encourage productive relationships and constructive communication within that right. group. It's been interesting to get to know the board. Candidly, it really starts with director selection. I'd say I'm a collateral piece to director selection. We have a, gov- a non-gov committee and a chairman of the board, and there's a lot that goes into that. But helping that happen and helping them think about future board members Just like hiring employees in a company, these are the critical decisions that if you can get it right, it puts you so much ahead in terms of what the work you have to do. And when I say board member selection, what I mean is people with great experience, people with financial acumen, people who come from a diverse background, both professionally and personally. and Knowing that most board members stay for a long time, it's like figuring out who you're going to marry, right? It's an important decision because you want it to last. If you succeed there and you get a group of people who complement each other and bring those qualities to the boardroom, I'd say the rest of it really kind of falls into the category of organization structure and communication, right? Organizing in a way that makes sense, that is not too heavily burdensome, but enough kind of it's like a good fences makes good neighbors, right? Enough of a structure that everybody knows how they're operating and can operate accordingly. Communications is key, making sure everybody is up to speed on where we are, where the management team is kind of skating to, where the puck is heading helping keep them trained and abreast of things that are going on, new developments in governance. All of those things, I think, come together in a package. And if you can kind of fit them together, the right people with kind of those right fundamentals, it goes a long way to making sure that the time you spend together is as productive as possible. You were an equity partner in a law firm, and then you joined Evergy, a publicly traded firm. What surprised you when you joined a publicly traded firm? What are some of the unique challenges that leadership faces in a publicly traded firm that maybe you didn't face in a law firm? I think that's, you know, that's a great question. I'm going to say something that sounds so obvious. I almost don't want to say it, but I can't not say it. It really is the public nature of the work that we do. And when you have the luxury of operating within these kind of private bounds of a firm and you are not constantly kind of have this umbrella of scrutiny, it feels like you have this flexibility 
to operate and to make decisions and then to change your decisions if you need to and not have it be kind of in this public forum that has so much regulatory kind of constraints and so many expectations and is so critical in terms of the actual word you use. Moving into a publicly traded company, I didn't immediately have that exposure. So fortunately for me, I kind of got to warm up to the place where I actually had to be in part responsible for how we manage that. And so the good news for me was that it was not like jumping into a pool and learning to swim. I joined the company to manage litigation and ultimately, roughly three years later, became GC. And it was then when it was kind of full circle in terms of my responsibility as it related to our requirements. And not just, I'd say it's more than just the regulatory umbrella that we operate under because we're publicly traded. That's a very important piece of it. But along with that, there's this public persona that goes hand in glove with and is as thoughtful and thought through as anything we file because we have to. And they have to coordinate. They have to complement each other. And and every word is important, both to make sure we're being transparent with our constituents and our stakeholders, but also to make sure we're not saying things we shouldn't say. So you're right. I mean, it's a totally different world. And it's like anything else. It's a lot about habit and training. Once you start doing it and you create habits and training about what feels right and where you're getting closer to the edge, it starts to feel a little bit more like second nature. But there are still times when everybody wakes up kind of in the middle of the night and says, did I forget something? Or did that go right? Or was that the right thing to do? And that's just part of it. So Evergy has gone through a lot of change over the last few years, and I imagine change makes communication more challenging. You talked about the role of publicly traded firms and the role of communication. When you're going through mergers and acquisitions and all the other changes that Evergy has confronted, how does that change how leaders approach the task of communication? Successful communication is one of the hardest parts of good leadership, irrespective of kind of what's going on. And you're right, any time you have enterprise potentially kind of impacting challenges or opportunities, right, that's just going to exacerbate what is already hard for leaders and for companies to get right about communications. And so as we've been in this kind of changing environment, whether it's Strategic opportunities before the Westar acquisition, which, as everybody knows, was unsuccessful, turned into a merger of equals, which then led to some activist shareholder interest and some changes in management and in the board. I think what we found is that transparency and frequency are kind of the keys to. I won't even say getting it right. I would never sit here and try to say we've always gotten it right on communications. But trying to get it right, trying to give people what they need and what they want and what they deserve in terms of information while knowing that there are things that cannot be discussed until a certain point is really the challenge. And you can really only get there with always pushing 
on yourselves and challenging yourself that questioning, are we doing this enough? Are we being transparent enough? Are we telling people what we can tell them? Or are we being more conservative than we need to be? And encouraging a two-way conversation is the other piece of it, which is also very tricky. Like it's very personal, very fast because town hall meetings, great for one-way communication. You can even send up a bunch of questions to the CEO or CFO, whoever's on the stage. It doesn't feel like personal communications. When we're doing, when we're talking about two-way communications, it's very personal, very fast. That's when we have to really rely on leaders throughout the company, frontline supervisors, managers, VPs to get in front of people, whether it's virtually or in person, and just have that dialogue. Be able to, you know, make them prepared so that they're comfortable and can answer questions, but then make themselves available to people to really have that one-on-one. Now I'm going to ask probably an unfair question. Okay. Because it's one of those big picture questions. So how do you see the utility industry changing over the next 10 years? I don't think that's an unfair question at all. I think it is one of the most dynamic segments of the economy that we have. And I know that's a big statement. I'm biased because I've been in it now for 14 plus years. And I thought it was exciting when I joined. I thought it was more exciting when I joined than I thought it would be. And now we are on the cusp, Brian, of a new way of thinking about traditional utility. And we are as traditional as it gets. We are a vertically integrated, fully regulated monopoly utility. We are shareholder owned. So you do have kind of both worlds there. What that means though, for our, I'd say historically what that meant for our ability to be flexible and to be thinking out past, I'd say, the same kind of issues that utility executives were dealing with in 1900 and that the regulatory model was designed to address. How do you provide reliable, cheap electricity to people in your territory? That's it. If that's the only thing you're looking at, right, it is very limiting in terms of what you can do and how you can think about new sources of energy cleaner sources of energy, new technology in energy. And so what we're finding is that, well, 10 years ago, you might have said, we'll never get there. I mean, legislation has to impact the regulatory bodies, which then have to impact us. And then it's never going to get there. The world is moving quickly on this and it needs to. So as the world moves quickly and we see investors more willing to step forward and lean into ESG and environmental causes and things like that, we see the path forward to meeting those constituents still in the same framework that we've always had to operate with our regulators and with legislators. We just passed legislation in Kansas. It's going to help us. It's called securitization. That's not super important in terms of what it's called, but it will help us as a utility, take coal-fired power plants that may have a useful life in regulatory terms that goes out to 2040, 2050, and retire them earlier than they would have been before so that we can replace them with more wind and more solar. There's technology that will help that 
happen faster that still hasn't happened, right? We need battery technology to improve. That will help with storage so that when we have the more environmentally friendly or the greener energy resources that don't always work when you need them to work, like in January with the winter weather event, you need a way to either store it or you got to rely on your coal-fired power plants. And so different sources of energy, non-carbon sources of energy, we are on the cusp of that stuff. And I will tell you, that is one of the things that the management team at Evergy and the board are waking up every day thinking about. So it's exciting to us. It's been kind of ingrained in the culture that we are not resisting technology. We are not resisting environmental change. We are embracing it. We have to make it work in the paradigm in which we live. And that's been our focus. I've heard you and others at Evergy talk about the importance of innovation in the firm and and the effort to always remain very agile. As you approach your role and you have responsibility for compliance and for legal issues, how do you approach that role in a way that supports innovation and efforts to be agile? It's an interesting conundrum, right? Because you can very easily find yourself in a box that's seen as the main force in stopping innovation, right? And I'd say it's kind of an old way of thinking about those functions. And I didn't fully probably put a granular thought around how to do that until I started. In 2010, I was asked to lead HR. And I had been in the law department. and It preceded becoming general counsel by about three months. But I learned something extremely important in that three months as I was learning how to step into a new role, a support role for the function, and think about how to articulate to the folks that are working every day with the business on how to do that. And it came to me because I was interviewing. I I decided to meet with everybody in the HR department in some respects to find out what they were doing in many respects so they could get to know me. I'm just a lawyer heading up an HR department. I'm sure they were terrified. And so I wanted it to be a person-to-person interaction that served a multitude of purposes. A couple of people, and it became pretty consistent. I would get at the end of the meeting, it was a half an hour meeting, I would get, please, if there's one thing we'd ask you to do, it would be to make sure that HR continues to have an important seat at the table. Just please be an advocate for HR. Please stomp your feet and bang on the door and make sure HR has a seat at the table. It became very clear to me, crystallized in that moment. And I said this to them, if we have to bang on the door and if we have to stomp our feet, we have already lost. As a support function to this company, the business is already designed to move forward. It is designed to do what's best for the company, to make money, to create jobs, to to do all these things. We have an opportunity here to partner in that. And if we do that well, if that's our goal and we fulfill that goal, they will beg us to come to the table. They will move mountains for us to join the conversation. Let's do that. Let's not be banging on the doors. And so in terms of innovation and helping pave the way versus looking for the reasons why we can't. And sometimes it feels easier to folks to look for the reasons why we can't, because that's always kind of a temptation. It's a human temptation to kind of sit on the sidelines and throw darts. 
And so the way I approach any support function, I've had several of them and legal and compliance are really that. Obviously, you know, we have obligations to the company and to shareholders and to regulators to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to do. But we can and should partner with the business. If we don't, they might as well outsource our function. They can outsource that and get somebody who can just answer the phone and say yes or no. So that's the way I think about helping the business stay focused, stay flexible, stay focused on change and stay focused on being able to be more versatile. You were touching on how you were leading your team in that example from HR. Maybe you could share a little bit about kind of in general within the teams that you work with. How do you create an environment where people feel comfortable disagreeing, sharing risky ideas, kind of exploring and experimenting? How do you create that environment within the roles that you supervise? It is such a critical thing to have for really anything as you think through problem solving Issue spotting and problem solving. That's what we do all day long. And it's kind of that brainstorming environment that you want to nurture and support. I think it's not controversial to agree that that's important. Getting there is trickier than it seems. I've also found that as you kind of ascend from a title perspective, it can be even harder because the weight of that title can get in the way of people being willing to speak up. And so being aware of that is, like anything else, is the first step in addressing it. How you address it, though, everybody's kind of got their own style. To me, authenticity is kind of a foundational piece of leadership that touches on all kinds of things that are important to a successful team. Making room for discussion, I think, is a piece of what that supports, authenticity. Stepping out yourself, being vulnerable yourself, demonstrating that is, I'd say, fundamentally a piece of it. But the other piece is to recognize that as that same title that can get in the way of people feeling comfortable can also be the thing that you wield to help create that space for conversation. So if the highest ranking member of the room, which I kind of hate, but it's like ignoring the elephant in the room, you can make the room for people to talk. Having some self-restraint and not always being the first to speak up. Once the perceived leader in the room speaks, it's amazing how quickly conversation can end. And so waiting and leaving that room to speak, inviting others to weigh in, and then really honestly encouraging every idea, even the bad ideas. Nobody even likes to say the word bad idea, but there are bad ideas, just not in a brainstorming. In a a brainstorming, it's okay. We want to hear every single thing. We want every idea. And so it's showing versus telling. You can tell people all day long, oh, I want to hear it. I want everybody to weigh in and everybody's view is important. If you say that, it's one thing. Telling people that is one thing. Showing them by leaving that room and inviting that conversation and making it okay and making mistakes okay. People will see that. Repeated errors is a different story and that has to be discussed. Mistakes that are born from experimentation are always okay and have to be okay, right? If we're going to push that ball forward. It's hard though. It's hard. I know another priority for you with your team is inclusion and diversity. 
And I wonder if you might just sort of chat about how you approach creating an environment that really does encourage diverse viewpoints and that is truly inclusive and how you partner with Evergy as a whole to accomplish objectives in this area. It's a work in progress. I think every company, every entity struggles with the gap between intention and outcome. And sometimes we're better than others. And sometimes we miss the mark. And I'm glad to have the intention. I I think my mother used to say the road to hell is paved with good intention, right? And there's some truth to that. But you have to have that as a start. So I'm, you know, I'm this chronic optimist. You have to have that as a start. That's not enough. And we know that's not enough. So it's a, it's a work in progress. I'd say there's so many angles to this issue. And with new leadership in the company, we're even kind of turning it a little bit more to explore where we might be able to make a bigger impact. Right now, and the way that we're thinking about it, we have to, the pendulum has kind of swung from when I started the company. When I started, we had somebody who woke up every day thinking about diversity and inclusion. And then we decided, no, it's everybody's responsibility and we should kind of have it be all leaders. We're back to thinking we need somebody waking up every day thinking. So we, we have a senior director of DE&I who has so many great ideas and who is a great kind of leader on this topic. That's kind of an initial piece. We are now measuring how we're doing on it. If you don't, you know, the old saying, if you don't measure it, it won't happen. And now we're measuring and it's tied to executive comp. We are making these steps. Specifically around, you know, I do think that there's a lot of work that can be done around the edges from a policy perspective that we can get into place. Hiring practices, candidate interview practices, things that training, bias training and things like that that we can put into place. And again, these are component pieces that alone won't necessarily get us to where we want to be, but I think are all kind of important components that just we're still working on. How do we tie that together and feel really good about the actual outcomes, translating these intentions to actual outcomes for the company? Now, one quality that good leaders seem to share is they're they're good at seeing trends and they're good at sort of seeing what's going on in a lot of different spaces. What is your approach for developing a sense about what's going on in a lot of different parts of our economy, our society, so that you can sense where there's an opportunity? I think it's a combination of things. Intellectual curiosity may be one of the primary components of leadership success. I guess any success. Why? Because it keeps you motivated to learn. And when you're motivated to learn, you will, each of us, I think, develops kind of our habits and rituals and go-tos in terms of information. For me, it's as much connections, industry folks, professional connections, I'd say even publications, things like that, you continue to kind of seek out because of that intellectual curiosity. Those are, I'd say, the component pieces and really being kind of steeped every day in the issues that face the industry and the company. You naturally, when you're fitting those, they just kind of start to fit together. 
I don't have a better way to describe that other than, you know, marrying kind of the enterprise level vision or view of the company and what we're doing and the challenges and opportunities we have with this intellectual curiosity that does require maintenance. Some of it's habitual, what you read and the sources that you look to for information. But some of the maintenance pieces, the the personal relationships and your network of professionals that you talk to. And I think marrying those together is really how I see that happening. You mentioned your network of professionals. Do you make a conscious effort to sort of establish a network that has access to different pieces of information? Or has your network kind of just evolved over time in kind of an organic kind of way? I'd say it's a two-parter. For me, my network, it's grown organically. Some people do this masterfully. It's not my nature to reach out to somebody I don't know and just suggest we go have coffee. It's just not something I'm super comfortable with. Fortunately, because of the experiences that I have, I've drawn to or I get the opportunity to have in the city, not even necessarily just professionally, but personally, then that has for me created a pretty robust network of professionals from a variety of backgrounds, not-for-profit, for-profit, educational, all kinds of areas. It's the maintenance piece of those relationships that has to be pretty intentional. And that is, I think, the combination that has worked best for me. Maybe we'll close with a question about impact. Sure. Obviously, you are in a role where there are amazing opportunities to be impactful. It's also a role where maybe many people don't see the nature of the impact you have throughout the organization and throughout the community. Maybe you could just sort of describe how your role allows you to be impactful at Evergy and in the community. Sure, absolutely. There's probably a lot of different things that I could point to. And somebody once told me that we all have a million stories. It's the stories you choose to tell that say something about who you are. I think about that as I think about what I would share about impact. And I don't know if that necessarily resonates here or not, but the story I would tell on impact that resonates with me is the ability to impact people has always been the most meaningful to me. And I've gotten to do that. I've been privileged to do that. And I had HR for eight years. I got to help drive policy changes that have real impacts on employees in very discreet and meaningful ways. I have had the platform to present to and speak to people in the company and outside the company on topics that I find meaningful. And I hope my goal in any presentation I make is for someone to walk away with one thing that's helpful to them, because that's my standard. If I hear somebody talk and I can walk away with one new thing, it was worth my time. And that's been my privilege to have a platform to do that from time to time. And so as I kind of think about Where I've been able to make an impact or hopefully made an impact, it would be to impact the lives of individuals in the company, outside the company, customers, students, stakeholders. I feel so fortunate 
to be in a position to have done that and to continue doing that as long as I can, I will. Heather, thank you so much for sharing your leadership insights. We've been talking with Heather Humphrey, Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at Evergy. This podcast has been brought to you by the Marion and Henry Block Family Foundation, dedicated to making Kansas City better. For more information about the Henry W. Block School of Management, please go to block.umkc.edu.